This is Curiosity Killed the Plaque with hygienist Spring Hatfield on the Today's RDH Dental Hygiene Podcast. Listen as Spring uses her naturally curious mind to explore the relevant topics hygienists currently face today. Hello, fellow dental dental professionals and tooth enthusiasts. Welcome to Curiosity Killed the Plaque. I'm your host, Spring Hatfield, and today we're going to discuss a topic that's crucial in our practice, informed consent. This episode is particularly aimed at dental hygienists, but is a great resource for anyone pretty much in the healthcare field, but definitely anyone in the dental profession, assistants, doctors, whoever. Um, So informed consent is a cornerstone of patient care. It's rooted in the patient's right to autonomy. It's a concept that's evolved over time and considering the dark history of medicine and medical research where patient's autonomy was often overlooked or not considered at all. um, We as healthcare providers, have an ethical obligation to ensure that such disregard for patient's autonomy never happens again. It's a very um, terrible time in our history for medical research and medicine in general, and I never want to see us go back to that. So let's make a solid effort never to contribute to, um, to the ignorance of someone's personal autonomy. Informed consent is required for multiple aspects of healthcare, uh, from treatment and surgeries to the dissemination of patient information under HIPAA. However, it's important to note that it's not all procedure that not all procedures require informed consent. For example, taking vital signs at the beginning of appointments, such as blood pressure, that does not require informed consent. That's um, that's kind of implied as part of the appointment when the patient arrives. Uh, There are three legal approaches to informed consent. The subjective standard, the reasonable patient standard, and the reasonable physician slash dentist standard. So the subjective standard focuses on what the patient needs to know to make an informed decision. The reasonable patient standard asks, what would the average patient need to know? This approach encourages a more patient-friendly explanation and with less technical terms, so to speak. And the reasonable physician slash dentist standard focuses on what a typical physician or dentist would say about the proposed procedure. Most states accept the reasonable patient standard, but it's crucial to refer to your State Dental Practice Act to ensure you're meeting all the requirements for your state's recommendations for informed consent, because some of them do vary. Um, Now let's talk about the components of informed consent. When proposing treatment, you should explain the following in a language that the patient clearly understands. One, patient's diagnosis. Two, the nature and purpose of the treatment. Three, the advantages and risks of treatment. Four, the alternatives, the, well, the alternative treatments if there are any available. Five, potential outcomes of treatment. And six, what might occur, both benefits and risks if the treatment is refused. It's also important to remember that patients have a responsibility too. They need to provide you with the accurate and complete information about their um, their, dis- their, their concerns, 
um, their medical history, anything like that. They have to provide that to you for you to be able to provide them with a proper informed uh, treatment plan to which will then lead to an informed consent. Um, they also are required to follow the treatment plan, report any unexpected changes in their condition, and ask questions if they have any. Uh, so when I say they're required to follow the treatment plan, I don't mean like they can never deviate from it. I just mean that if they don't follow the treatment plan and there's a bad outcome, say they have a really a tooth with a big cavity and it's almost to the nerve and the we propose to uh, do a buildup and a crown on that tooth and the patient waits too long and they need a root canal so the treatment plan has now changed the provider cannot be held held liable for that because the patient didn't follow the treatment plan as was provided to begin with in the, in the original uh, informed consent. So that's what I mean by follow the treatment plan. It doesn't mean that patients can't change their mind about their treatment. It just means if they don't follow the treatment plan that we provide for them along with the informed consent, then we are not liable for the progression of their disease, essentially. So let's delve deeper into each of these components. First, the patient's diagnosis. This can change at any time, and it's crucial to inform the patient of their diagnosis and any changes in treatment before proceeding. So for example, a patient is scheduled for a prophy, um, and they might actually require scaling in the presence of gingival inflammation after you've done your periodontal evaluation and you see that there's generalized bleeding and inflammation and things like that. In a case like this, you have to acquire informed consent for the new treatment to avoid any potential liability. When a patient presents for a prophy, you don't need to get informed consent to do the prophy. You only need to get informed consent if anything deviates from the appointment, uh, the original uh, treatment that the appointment was made for. Uh, next, the nature and purpose of the proposed treatment, it's important to explain the difference between a prophy and scaling in the presence of gingival inflammation. The key difference is that the latter is uh, more therapeutic and um, it is necessary when the patient is in a diseased state. A prophy is for preventative and you can explain that to the patient. You know, we do a prophy to prevent a disease prevent you from crossing over into a disease disease state but once you've, you're into that disease state we have to do a more therapeutic treatment which requires a different um, different treatment altogether we may include some different adjunctives to the appointment there could be other things like that anything that you do differently whenever you do um, scaling in the presence of gingival inflammation you need to disclose that to your patient so they know and, ex and know what to expect with what's going to happen and why you're doing it uh, moving on to the advantages and risks of treatment the risks associated with scaling in the presence of gingival inflammation are usually self-limiting like soreness and discomfort However, there's a very, very, very minuscule risk of bacteremia, which should be disclosed. The benefits are numerous, with the most significant being the halt of this, the disease pr progression, of course. So we need to make sure that we're disclosing all that information so that the patient understands that most likely they are going to be have some soreness after the treatment and they're not shocked and they don't call back to the office complaining about how terrible their hygienist was because their mouth hurts. Um, if you go over all this information and, and give them the advantages and risks of the treatment, including self-limiting um, things like soreness and discomfort, uh, your patients will be 
better prepared to um, and not be upset or <laughs> angry because they uh, they have a little bit of discomfort. Um, alternative treatments can be a tricky area. For instance, if a patient has gingivitis, the primary option is scaling in the presence of gingival inflammation. However, for preventative and restorative options, alternatives can be offered. It's our duty to present all options to the patient to make an informed decision. This doesn't mean the option that you think you would want. This doesn't mean the option that you think their insurance is gonna cover. This means all options all options for them to make the decision. It's not your decision to make, it's their decision to make. Next, the potential outcome of treatments should also be discussed. It's important to be honest with the patient about the good, the bad, the ugly. For instance, if a patient does not respond well to non-surgical periodontal therapy, they may need periodontal surgery or could end up losing teeth over time. This is not the ideal outcome we want, but it is a possibility and therefore it should be disclosed. And lastly, we need to discuss the risks and benefits of treatment if it, if it is refused. For periodontal disease, the, refusing, the refusal doesn't provide many benefits beyond financial ones, of course. However, the risks include worsening or onset of systemic diseases and tooth loss. It's crucial to allow the patient to ask questions and understand their perspective on benefits and risks. Make sure that you give them plenty of time to have a conversation and also offer them the opportunity to call back to the office if they think of other information, other questions that they may have that they didn't, that didn't come to them at the time. Because sometimes when you get a diagnosis and a treatment plan that can be pricey sometimes your brain kind of just shuts down at least mine does and sometimes I think of questions I need to ask after I've left the office so make sure that you extend the, uh, the extend to them that you know you're welcome to call the office with any further questions my name is spring you can ask for me and I'll be happy to um, have a conversation with you and um, patients tend to accept treatment better whenever they feel like there's an open line of communication and that they can ask questions without um, judgment or ridicule. So that's an important aspect of, um, of the refusal part of treatment if they refuse. Remember, providing the right components for informed consent may seem like a mental exercise, but it's easy to condense into a brief conversation. Uh, most dental software has informed consent forms that you can print for the patient to sign. Make sure the proper treatment is listed on the forms. Uh, I've seen some, I've worked in some offices, they print me an informed consent and it doesn't even have the right treatment on it and that's that's pointless. We might as well not even sign it at all. Um, also, keep a copy for your records. Ideally, informed consent should be signed prior to treatment. Therefore, if the diagnosis or treatment plan changes during treatment, the patient should sign a new informed consent form. Patients' decisions about their treatment may not always meet our expectations, but it is our duty to honor them and provide them with all the information they need to make these decisions. If you're withholding any information regarding any component of informed consent, you are doing your patients an injustice. I encourage you to be transparent and honest regarding treatment options, risk versus benefit, potential outcomes, and risks and benefits of treatment refusal. I hope this discussion on informed consent has been enlightening. Remember, our goal is to empower our patients with knowledge and respect their autonomy. If you have 
any questions, comments, or concerns about anything I've said today, please reach out to me at spring at todaysrdh.com. Until next time, stay curious. Thank you for listening to the Today's RDH Dental Hygiene Podcast. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.